This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by John McTernan, former Labour advisor, and James Heal. Well, it's been another difficult day for Keir Starmer, who has had a U-turn on his support for Azar Ali, the Labour candidate for the Rochdale by-election, since more information has been revealed about his views on the Israel-Palestine conflict. James, it's been a big story today, so could you talk us through the logistics for the coming by-election? Sure, so I'll just start by saying we got this statement yesterday, Monday evening, quarter to eight, uh, suggesting that new information had come to light, which is why Labour was pulling its... Uh, support for Ali and uh, subsequently a few hours later the Daily Mail front page dropped uh, which had comments suggesting that uh, um, he he blamed quote people in the media from certain Jewish quarters end quote uh, for fueling criticism of a pro-Palestinian Labour MP Uh, and then today this evening we've seen comments made by a current Labour candidate and former MP Graham Jones which have also been duly criticised by the Jewish Labour movement um, from around that time as well. And so um, basically where we're at now is, I believe your name will appear on the ballot uh, along with the Labour logo as the Labour candidate, but Labour have pulled all support from Azhar Ali. Uh, and of course, we've got two and a half weeks to go till that by-election in Rochdale. Uh, and so now we're in a scenario where uh, a number of Labour MPs are feeling pretty disgruntled, I'd say, about the handling of this whole episode. It seemed very clear to a lot of people on Sunday that he was going to have to go, given the very high bar that... Um, Keir Starmer has set himself on anti-Semitism and the suspensions of previous MPs like Kate Osterman and Andy MacDonald. Um, and I suppose I could give you know one example of ha- how the mood is within the party by quoting Neil Kinnock, who says that the Azhar Ali fiasco was a, quote, absolute bloody gift for Rishi Sunak. And uh, I think basically that's where we're at on Tuesday evening. John, what are Keir Starmer's options now? So the... The biggest and most important thing that has to happen is that there's, there is something learnt from this experience. Neil Kinnock, I think, shows outrage there because at the time that Neil was leader, uh, I was around working in war through the then, the then Labour HQ, and the scrutiny of by-election candidates uh, was intense by the Labour Party before they became candidates because they knew that the there'd be a massive scrutiny uh, of the uh, of the candidate in the by-election. And something has slipped up in the due diligence. There's been a lot of paranoia on the left of the party about how much control Lotto, the leader of the Labour Party's office, leader of opposition's office, Keir Starmer's office, can have over selections for new MPs for the next general election. But we're seeing now why you have massive due diligence about who are going to be your candidates. And I expect... The zero tolerance that is finally the policy on Azhar Ali to be applied, I would have expected to be applied to Graham Jones. It's hard to see in the quotes of Khan that Graham has, has been cited as having said why he should be sustained as a, as, a, as a Labour parliamentary candidate. And I think the high bar, on the one hand, the high bar that, that Keir set for the party has to now be absolutely more emphatically used. And I think... Labour rushed into the Rochdale by-election. They rushed into the selection. I personally uh, would have had an, an NEC, uh, National Executive Committee, a by-election panel. I would have imposed a candidate. I wouldn't have had any risk in this. 
there's all kinds of reasons why they didn't they didn't do that. And one of them is that this is a less centralising Labour Party in a funny kind of way than uh, than either Neil had or Neil Kinnock had or, or Tony Blair had. Um, and there's also something about the process, which is the length it took to dis- to decide and then undecide is probably the thing that's unnerving most Labour backbenchers, most Labour MPs, most um, shadow ministers, shadow cabinet members, that if you decide and defend, then you have to stick by the decision, then you have to stick by the defence. And if you're going to decide, you either, you know, the, the rule of, of crisis comms is speed kills. You have to make a quick decision, but you have to know all the facts. It, it seems odd that neither... Azar, neither Azar was asked, is there anything else you said that might be difficult? Um, and it's also odd to think that there appears to, there appears to have been a blank drawn in terms of finding other people who were at that meeting who could say, actually, what did Azar say? So there's, there's something really gone wrong in the management of this by-election process almost at every stage. And the thing about this, 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 this by-election, this moment is... These are stress tests. This is not a general election. It's not the pace of a general election, the pressure of a general election. And a stress test can be a benefit because if you have a stress test and you see where the pressure uh, makes things bend, you can fix them. So the onus now is on fixing this, fixing it quick and fixing it permanently, I'd have thought. And John, just looking at the Labour divides that this could cause, I mean, Lisa Nandy was sent out to back Azhar Ali. So was Nick Thomas-Simmons. Anti-Semitism is what toppled Jeremy Corbyn. Can you see a world in which the same happens to Kirstama? No, look, I think the um, the Labour Party that Kirstama is in charge of is one that he really has changed from the Labour Party and cares from, from Jeremy Corbyn. Sim- you know, if you, if you think about it, Labour went from having Palestinian flags waived annual conference and then two years, two years later... Basically, uh, Keir Starmer uh, got the got the party to show its shock uh, and horror and solidarity with the Israeli people on the because the the slaughter on on October the seventh. So the change is real, but I think what the damage that Corbyn did to the Labour Party was it made it's toxified the brand so much that it means that any any small slip is much larger in its impact. So I would think that Keir has to rebuild trust with with the community, the Jewish community, with the Jewish labor movement, with a lot of figures who trusted and believed that he'd really changed the Labour Party, which I think is true and is still true. But this kind of mistake makes shows you how thoroughgoing change has to be, that you have to be vigilant, constantly vigilant, and that you can't just go... We're through this process. We've done all the stuff, and I think one of the things that, that, that's underestimated with what, what, what the face, the, the challenges that Kier faces, what's underestimated in the challenges that Kier faces, is how short a time he's had to do what he's done. Neil Kinnock had two elections, eight years, and he got Labour to being electable, to the edge of being electable. Keir's had four years, maybe only two because the pandemic takes up two of them, and he's got Labour to being 26 points in the lead. And so that's the paradox of this, which is he's done it faster, but maybe some of the changes are more fragile, and this this exposes that the speed hasn't meant it bed in. There's some inexperience, there's some 
it's just it's just it is difficult to make all the changes Labour needs to make in time for the general election. And James, you spoke at the end of your answer about um, the gift for Rishi Sunak. And so yesterday, Rishi went on to do a GB News Q&A with a live audience. And he seemed a little less tetchy than sometimes he has been before. Yes. I mean, Rishi Sunak is going to be spending a lot more time out of London meeting real people to uh, borrow from Dominic Mm. Cummings' famous phrase. And he's going to be going around the country doing these events, part of the PM Connect events. And yesterday he did this People's Forum with GB News. And, you know, Sunak loves that kind of environment. His team thought he did pretty well. And the one sense, yes, obviously it's easier taking questions from ordinary people rather than journalists asking follow-up. Equally, though, as we saw in one exchange with one gentleman who raised about COVID vaccine damage, you can then get things completely afield. Whereas, you know, if you're facing an established broadcaster, you probably know the line of questioning they're going to take. I think what's noticeable is that Sunak often, I think, would say bristles slightly when he's asked a question by a journalist. He henches up, whereas he was much more relaxed with, you know, quote-unquote ordinary people. And obviously being, you know, quite far behind the polls, I think his team will be keen to get him to do as many of those kind of things as possible, have word of mouth pass on from people from going to those kind of things, and also just keen to debate Keir Starmer. And they do point out that, you know, 18 months ago he was against Liz Truss, Yes, he lost that by 10-point margin. But if you look at where the dynamics were set in that race, he did get the Liz Truss lead down from the earlier YouGov poll in that race. So he's well used to going around the country with odds against him in that sense. Um, and I think that they felt it went reasonably well. It was an event in Darlington, and I think you know there they were more interested in public spending than tax cuts, which I think says something perhaps about the challenge ahead, which is when people want to feel better, they want to see it as much in the NHS as they do is a discount off national insurance. The second thing is there was far less emphasis on small boats. And I think that often we can forget that in the debates. The small boats are just one thing. And the overall people's sense of well-being and the economy is likely to play a greater role. So all of those were interesting takeaways. Uh, and it shows perhaps why running a kind of single-issue election, as some previously in the Tory party urging, you know, pulling out the UCHR, Rwanda election, probably a won't... referendum-style election. Ex- exactly, a 2019 get Brexit done. I don't think this has the same factors associated as it does with Brexit. Rishi's number 10 should maybe... Take a take a leaf out of Tony's book because Tony Blair facing an election with a grumpy public, which were a bit alienated from the Labour Party. He did what was called the masochism tour, and the thing was, it wasn't going out and meeting people; it was going out and meeting people and letting them vent at him. And the danger of the operation that Number Ten seemed to like, which is getting Rishi in a comfy place, is that Labour twenty six points ahead in the polls. People are angry. You want them to express their anger to your face, not in the ballot box. And that was the, that was the thing. That's why it was a masochism strategy. It's like, I know I'm going to get a beating, but the thing is I'd rather have them shout at me now than shout at me in the ballot box. And I think that's an element of it too. Simply meeting, meeting the public and having good pictures to show to other members of the public doesn't allow that expression. And I think what we've learned from the last two weeks or so is, you know, clearly, as we discussed many times, Having, has issues in the polls, but also, you know, the Starmer operation, the Tories now looking at it and thinking, these guys are there for the taking. Okay, they're ahead in 20 points at the polls, but you look at the Green New Deal flip-flopping, you look at where Rochdale's been handled, it's not an impregnable machine like New Labour was in their pomp. And I think both sides are thinking, you know, how do we minimise our own mistakes and maximise exploiting the opposition's errors? So that'll be interesting when it comes to voters. And, you know, given we're in quite a volatile age, you know, you've seen lots of heckling of Labour figures over things like Gaza, for instance. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how both leaders take um, to be on the street. I agree that. I, though I do think that this, this this last period probably plays really firmly into 
the one line that Morgan McSweeney, who's the campaign director of the Labour Party, will give you if you meet him anywhere in the country at any time. He'll say, there's no room for complacency. And I think if there's, you know, there's, there's, there's two lessons uh, from Rochdale. Uh, there's no room for complacency. There's a lot of room for more professionalism. And meanwhile, John, just briefly, um, Housing Secretary Michael Gove has been unveiling his plans to boost building and you've been reading the paperwork. What did, what did you think? I think it's intriguing. I think there's a number of things. Michael's a clever politician, so he knows that if the Tories don't have an answer for housing, it's really hard to appeal to younger voters, the parents of younger voters as well, so it's quite a big constituency. Um, but he also knows he's hampered by pushing more building everywhere in the country because his backbenchers are against it. So he's, he's now decided to build on Brownfield, good, which is mainly urban, and to choose 20 areas which can almost be guaranteed not to be Labour, uh, not to be um, Tory-held constituencies, they're Labour areas. But the detail is fascinating because there's... There's a little, there's a consultation on the London plan, so a little kick at uh, Sadiq Khan on the way through. Should um, the mayor's powers on house, on planning and housing and development be limited slightly? And there's a, there's an intriguing detail in, in the thing about brownfield development, which is, should councils have to, should they be able to ignore planning guidance on daylight and sunlight in looking at new developments, which suggests to me uh, that there's um, a new generation of slums being thought of. Uh, but, you know, you can't object to them because there's no, uh, there's no need for sunlight or daylight to be in your flat because we're building a flat for you. And the next thing will be sizes. We'll be dropping minimum size standards and um, we'll be building uh, cubby holes um, with, with, no, with no outside light, but there will be houses and they can count to the number. With Michael always, there's a big political issue. He's addressing it head on. And there's also... Uh, an agenda phrased in there as well and I think it's always worth looking at the detail of consultation papers uh, you know uh, www.gov.uk has always got something interesting to read the devil's in the detail thank you John thank you James and thanks for listening <laughs>